Well, uh, uh, good, good morning, everyone. I uh, uh, today I want to uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, today I'm gonna uh, talk about um, I wh okay. What I'm trying to say is uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Aaron, lead pastor for Riverwood. If you're a first time guest. I normally don't mess up that much at the beginning of my message. I, I occasionally will slip up and say um and uh, the filler words, but I'm usually a little better prepared than how I just was. And the reason is, first words matter. If, if you've ever seen a really, really good TED Talk, you'll notice that the, the speaker, they will capture you right away. They'll make you want to listen. They, they will come across as like an expert or they, they tell a story that just captures you and engrosses you because they know that their first words matter. If you've ever had a job interview and you get in there, you want to make a good first impression, but you realize that to make that impression, it's going to depend upon your first words because first words matter. Today, Mark has strategically allowed us at this point here in week four to finally hear from Jesus. We get to hear Jesus's first words. And, and no, they're, they're not going to be uh, mama, papa, abba, whatever a, a brand new, you know, little Jewish boy might say in the first century. But we are going to hear the first words that Mark selects for us to hear because Mark knows first words matter. And those first words that we're going to hear we're going to see today them change some lives. There are going to be some people who will make some radical decisions all because of the first words that Jesus utters. But here's the amazing thing. Those first words, they have the potential to change our lives as well. That's why you need to listen in as we study the book of Mark. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we get ready to go into the uh, study of the book of Mark, as we look here at, at chapter 1, uh, verses 14 and 15, would you be the, the one to teach us? Would you open our eyes and would you hear, let, help us to hear Jesus' first words? Because they matter and they can change our life. So open us up to what you want to say. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Uh, whether it's a, a paper copy or you're going to get uh, out your phone, feel free to open up to Mark chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to put the, the slides up on the screen so you can read along. Also, you can use the Bible tab over on the side. It's right next to the chat feature. Go there, just head to the New Testament, and right after the book of Matthew, you'll see the book of Mark, and you can join us there. As you're flipping to Mark, let's just do a really, really quick review. Uh, here we are in week four of this series. In week one, we had the opportunity to meet John the Baptist. And, and John's whole purpose, his whole mission in life was to point people to Christ. But then in week two, Ed Pavlik, one of our elders, he talked about the, the baptism of Jesus. And we discovered it wasn't just John the Baptist that pointed to Jesus. It was also God the Father and God the Spirit. That when Jesus came up out of the waters, the heavens parted and the Spirit descended like a dove. So the Spirit pointed to Jesus. And then God's voice rang out, saying, This is my Son. With him I am well pleased. And God pointed to Jesus. But then last week we saw, right after this kind of pinnacle point, this mountaintop experience, God's Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness where he fasted from food for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of it, he began to be tempted by Satan. Now, Mark did not tell us what those temptations were. So we went over to the book of Matthew chapter four, and we saw Jesus tempted three times and they were tough temptations. Most of us, we would have just given in right away. 
But Jesus made it through. And what we discovered was the way he made it through that temptation was by relying on the word of God and also relying upon his union with the Father. Now, I think Mark strategically did not take us into the wilderness like Matthew did, because I think he wanted us to hear the first words from Jesus at this point. So let's take a look at what Jesus' first words in Mark are. Join me. Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, our section today begins with John. This is referring to John the Baptist getting arrested. Now, Mark gives us no more details, but you you go over to uh, Matthew chapter 14, and you discover that John got arrested not for doing anything illegal. He simply was preaching against Herod. You see, Herod had stolen his brother's wife. His brother Philip had a wife, Herodias, and Herod really liked her, so he basically stole her and made her his wife. It, it was just like this open affair. Well, John the Baptist, being John the Baptist, wasn't afraid to preach what he knew was wrong, and so he publicly said, this is sin, this is wrong. Kind of ticked Herod off, so Herod had him arrested. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, Herod ends up beheading John later. And so because the only human voice we've heard so far in the book of Mark is now silenced by being arrested, It's like Mark now turns the spotlight over to Jesus and lets us hear from Jesus for the first time. And notice what Jesus says, because first words matter. Let's break this down phrase by phrase. The first phrase that Jesus says is, the time is fulfilled. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, God had begun to whisper that a Messiah, a Savior, that he was going to come himself and rescue the people. But this had been taking place for thousands of years through the prophets and the writings. And and I think some people wondered, is Messiah ever going to come? Jesus knows he is the Messiah. He is God the Son. He has arrived. And so therefore, the time is fulfilled. God had kept his promise. So because the time had been fulfilled, Jesus says next, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Have you ever walked into the kitchen or the dining room right before a big meal? Uh, All all the food is out on the table and the smells, the aroma is just wafting through the the room. It's almost like the smells just lift you up and they carry you in and they set you down in your seat. All the food is on the table. You're so hungry, you're ready to eat, but you have to wait for everyone else to arrive. The meal is at hand. I mean, it's right there in front of you, but you can't eat it yet. You've got to wait. That's the polite thing to do. The meal is at hand. That's what is happening here. When Jesus shows up, he's like, the kingdom of God is at hand. Or another way to translate it would be, the kingdom of God is near. But why did Jesus, the, the son of God, the Messiah, as he's shown up, why did he say the kingdom of God is near and not say the kingdom of God is here? To explain that, we need to talk about kingdoms just a little bit. A kingdom is simply the territory that a king or a queen rules over. Uh, The Jewish people were very, very knowledgeable in this. They were underneath the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom, if you will. And even though there was this Herod guy overseeing Israel, they all knew that the Caesar was the real king, that he ruled over this entire Roman Empire. It was their territory. They ruled. Now, you would think that because God created all things, as we heard through the Kids Creek lesson last week, that that through Jesus, all things were created by him. 
And, and, and so you would think that, therefore, all the heavens and the earths would be God's kingdom. It would be his territory. And in the beginning, it was. However, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they didn't just break a command and let sin kind of enter into the story. It was as if sin crashed in and stole creation away from God. It's like a spiritual coup. It overthrew God and his rule and reign over the earth. And it was like sin took over. That's why in all throughout the Gospel of John, you see Jesus refer to Satan as the ruler of this world, even the ruler of this age. And so when Jesus shows up, it's not his kingdom. It should be. I mean, he has the right to it. He, he created all of it, but it was stolen away from him. And so he has arrived to, in a sense, win it back, to reestablish his kingdom for himself. But that leads us to the question of how? How did Jesus overthrow the kingdom of sin? Well, the, the answer is through the cross. It means that his crucifixion was his coronation. That instead of getting a crown of gold set upon his head, he had a crown of thorns jabbed onto his brow. Instead of being handed a scepter, he had nails driven through his hands and his feet. Instead of sitting down on an ornate throne, he was nailed to a rough wooden cross. Make no mistake, in that moment, sin was defeated. The kingdom of sin came tumbling down and Jesus became the king. He began to rule over what was rightfully his. So when Jesus shows up in Mark, the kingdom hadn't come yet. It wasn't until the cross and the resurrection had happened that now the kingdom of God is here. But here in Mark 1, it's just that the kingdom is at hand. But what this tells us is that the kingdom Jesus was interested in establishing wasn't a physical kingdom. He did not come to earth to overthrow the Romans. He, he did not come to earth to overthrow any sort of physical kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. Because you see, as God the Son, he was there from the beginning. He knew what had happened throughout time. He saw the Egyptians rise and fall. He saw the Babylonians rise and fall. And here the, the Romans had, had risen, and he knew that they too would one day fall. What the people needed was not yet another earthly kingdom. What they needed was a new spiritual kingdom, the reestablishment of God's kingdom. Because sin had been ruling ever since Genesis 3. And no matter what earthly kingdom was around, the kingdom of sin continued to reign. And so Jesus came to overthrow it and reestablish his kingdom so that we could move out of the kingdom of sin and move into the kingdom of God. That is why he said the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. Well, because it's a spiritual kingdom... Jesus tells us how to enter into this spiritual kingdom. This is the third phrase he says. Repent and believe in the gospel. Though the word repent simply means to turn around, to, to do a 180. It's like you're headed one direction and then suddenly you realize, nope, that's not the right thing. I need to turn. I need to repent and go the other direction. In religious jargon, it, it's simply to turn away from doing wrong and start begin to do what is right. But what is it he wants us to repent from. I, I think the next phrase kind of gives us a clue. He says that we are to believe in the gospel, which means the underlying assumption is that we don't believe the gospel, that we actually have unbelief and we need to repent from our unbelief and turn to believing in the gospel, which leads us now to this question of what is the gospel? 
the, the Greek word for, that gets translated gospel is euangelion. Uh, it's where we get our word evangelical. Uh, euangelion really should be translated good news. Like, like it's, it's the good news, even joyful news. And this is significant because so often religions are all about advice. It, it, it really, it, they're just moral advice. Religions tell you what to pray, when to pray, how often to pray, and, and what to wear, what not to wear, or, or what to eat, what not to eat. They give you all of this advice, and if you follow their advice, then you will become like accepted by the God of that religion. Jesus does not come down to earth and say, the kingdom of God is at hand, so let me give you some advice. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe the good news. You ever had a moment where you heard something or learned something and everything changed? Like, like, like you, maybe it was something good. Like, like you really, really wanted to get into a certain college or you'd hoped to get that scholarship and suddenly you find out you, you got it, you, you got in. And, and like you realized in that moment your life changed or maybe you really wanted to become a parent and you'd been trying for months to become pregnant and now finally it, it, it's happened. In that moment, you realize everything's changed. My life is going to be different. Or maybe it was because of, of tough news. Maybe you found out you've been laid off or the doctor told you it's cancer or you, you received that phone call that, that said, you know, this dear loved one has, has passed away. And in that moment, you realize life is not going to be the same. Everything changed. I want you to realize that it was not the moment that changed you. You, you are experiencing moments all the time, like, like constantly, like right now, we are experiencing a moment. It wasn't the moment that changed you. It was the news that changed you. When you learned that news, it's the news that helped you realize my life is never going to be the same. Right now, the news is changing us. Every day when we hop online or, or we turn on the TV or we open up our social media feeds, we're, we're seeing all this news and everything is changing almost constantly. And after this pandemic, we're going to realize we're not going to go back to things just the way they were. Because there will be some people who have passed away because of this. There will be some businesses that have shut down because of this. There's going to be all sorts of things that we're going to have to continue to work through. This news has changed our lives. That's why Jesus did not come and say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Let me give you some advice. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. So believe the good news. The good news that God loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent me, his one and only son, the Messiah, to this earth to overthrow the kingdom of sin, to establish the kingdom of God so that you could move out of your spiritual death into spiritual life. Repent from your unbelief and believe in this gospel. Believe the good news. And that news, it changed some people. And we see it in the very next section. So if you still have your Bible there, uh, continue on with me. Chapter 1, verses uh, 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. 
Now, there's something really, really unique going on here. Uh, typically, when a young man wanted to become a rabbi, he would approach a well-known rabbi and ask to become his pupil. And that rabbi would then turn around and begin to question the student, even like almost like an interrogation. He'd quiz him, want to know his understanding of the Torah, probably had him quote from the Torah. Basically, this rabbi wanted to know, are you smart enough? Are you good enough to be like me? Because you see, a rabbi didn't just want to pass on everything that he knew and believed and the way he taught. He actually wanted some of these students to kind of become like him. And so he wanted to know, will my teaching be able to continue on? Because I received it from my rabbi and I wanted to now pass it to these young men and them teach in my vein of understanding of Judaism. And some of these rabbis, they almost were like Ivy League schools. They were proud of how many students they turned away which caused those who actually got accepted to become very, very prideful. They thought they were the best of the best because they got accepted by this rabbi. But Jesus was no typical rabbi. Instead of waiting for Simon and Andrew, James and John to come and approach him, Jesus walks up to them. These were just the everyday Joes of their society. They're just out fishing. They're just doing a job. They're there with their family. They're just working. And Jesus walks up to them. And now maybe they had heard him preaching earlier. Maybe they heard this repent and believe the good news. But suddenly this rabbi walks up to them and says, I want you to follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And they do. Like they, they leave it all behind and they follow him. Because when they heard follow me, basically they realized he was saying, guys, I invite you into my rabbi school and I'm going to change your life. They heard the news and it changed them. But this message wasn't just for the everyday Joes. It also was for the sinful, the despicable, the outcasts. So if you would, flip over to chapter 2 here in Mark. Flip over to cha chapter 2, head over to verse 13. We're going to read Mark 2, 13 through 17. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his, Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous sinners. So our passage here in chapter 2 begins much like what we saw back in chapter 1. Jesus is out by the Sea of Galilee. He begins teaching. By now, he's kind of gaining some fame because he teaches unlike the other rabbis. So people are starting to flock and come around him. He's got this collection of, of disciples around him. So he's establishing himself as a rabbi to really be listened to. And there he is by the Sea of Galilee. He's preaching and teaching. And over on the side there is a tax booth. And in that tax booth is a guy named Levi. Levi probably can overhear it. Well, Jesus gets done teaching. He begins to walk away and he looks at Levi and says, follow me. Now, what you need to understand is that Levi was a tax collector and tax collectors did not have a good reputation, like at all. I mean, first of all, they were collecting taxes for the Roman government. All right, so basically they were seen as like traitors. And so here they are collecting taxes 
from their own people, sending it off to their oppressor, to their enemy. And, and so, like, how could you betray us like that? So tax collectors were not liked. Now, Levi himself, he, he was a tax collector, but he was probably more like a customs official. As he's working at this booth by the sea, typically what that would mean is that people, as they made their catch out in the waters, they'd have to bring their haul of fish up to the tax booth and they'd have to pay a tax. And that would have been really frustrating because they were gonna take it to market, but they hadn't sold it yet. And yet they were gonna be paying taxes on what was expected to happen, not on based on what they had already sold. And so they wouldn't have been happy about this. But it actually gets worse. It isn't just that tax collectors were traitors. It was also that they were liars and thieves. You see, tax collectors would often tell people, all right, how much do you have? Like, who's all in your family? Or, or how much did you catch? Okay, that means your tax is this much. They've calculated it out and you were expected to pay it. But the problem was these tax collectors were only supposed to collect this amount for Rome and the extra they kept for themselves. And, and so the tax collectors were probably paid a pretty good wage by Rome and yet they're making extra. And so they were some of the wealthiest in their society. And everyone knew they were making their wealth off the backs of their own people, their fellow Jews. And so no one liked tax collectors. So the only, the only friends that tax collectors had were other tax collectors or anyone that the society, the culture deemed as an outcast, as a sinner. That's why it would have been jaw dropping for Jesus to walk up to this tax booth and say, Levi, follow me. By the way, Levi does follow him and we know him as Matthew. He went on to write the gospel of Matthew. But did you notice Levi did not look at Jesus and say, oh, I, I heard your teaching. It's so good. I, I'm not good enough to become one of your disciples. I, like I, I've, I've done some really, really bad things. No, he doesn't say to Jesus, let me clean up my act first. He immediately drops his stuff, leaves the money, leaves the booth, leaves his job, leaves everything to go and follow Christ. So then he invites Jesus over for a party. And the only friends that Levi has are, are other tax collectors and, and prostitutes and other, you know, outsiders, these sinners. And so he, he invites them over. And so Jesus and disciples are, are hanging out with these sinners and the Pharisees see it and it drives them nuts. They, they question it. In fact, they won't even go to Jesus and question him. They pull some of Jesus' disciples aside. They, they, they question them and Jesus catches on what's happening. He goes, hey, hey guys, come, come here. Let me explain why I've invited Levi to follow me. It's verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous sinners. Now, I would imagine in that moment that some of the Pharisees heard that and in thought in themselves, oh, okay, agree to disagree. Those are despicable people. You should not be hanging out with them. Like they're going to affect you and influence you and you'll become a sinner just like them. You need to stay away from people like that. But you say you're here for the sick. They are clearly sick. But you know what? That's why they're going to follow you. That's why guys like Levi will follow you. But we won't because clearly you're, you're here for the sick. We are healthy. You know what? We're, we're just fine. Like we have the Torah memorized. We teach other people these things. We, we're, we're like the, the lawyers. We, we understand the Jewish law. We explain it to people. We, we tithe everything we're supposed to. We go to this, the temple on the Sabbath. We are so good. We're healthy. What they don't realize is that they are just as sick as Levi. Now, Levi and his friends, 
They at least knew what they were doing was wrong and sinful. And so they could be a little more honest. But the, the Pharisees were so blind, they couldn't see that their pride was just as sinful. Their pride would lead them to discrimination, how they would look down upon other people like Levi and his friends. How, how they thought they were so good and righteous because of everything they do, because they kept all of the moral advice. And yet here's Jesus showing up and he's saying, I came to the sick. And all of you are sick. The everyday Joes, like Simon and Andrew, they're sick of sin. The, the, the outcasts, like Levi and his tax collector friends, they're sick with sin. And even you, the Pharisees, who think you're too good, you are sick with sin. That's why Jesus describes elsewhere in the scriptures these Pharisees as being whitewashed tombs. They, they, they may have looked really pretty, but inside it was nothing but deadness. They were spiritually dead. And what they needed to do was to repent of their unbelief and to believe in the gospel. The good news that the Messiah was here and the Messiah was going to overthrow the kingdom of sin so that people could come back into a relationship with their creator. Maybe you are listening to this and you're thinking, well, you know, I, I believe these things. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. You know, maybe you're a Christian because, you know, you, you do good things, you're, you're nice, you, you believe some of these stories. Maybe your grandma and grandpa were really faithful church attenders, and so just everyone, your parents, your, your siblings, your cousins, all of you are, are Christian. What I want you to realize is that Jesus shows up in a Jewish culture where everyone saw themselves as Jews. The everyday Joes, like Simon and Andrew, James and John, even the tax collectors like Levi and his friends, and especially the Pharisees, they were all Jews which meant that they would go to the temple on the Sabbath. They would hear the Torah read aloud. They even believed the prophets. They knew all this stuff. And yet Jesus comes and still says, repent. See, Jesus does not care about how good you are. He loves you so much. He wants to rescue you out of your sinful sickness. So if you have never put your faith clearly in Jesus, I invite you to do so. To repent of your unbelief, to repent of relying on yourself, and believe in the gospel. Believe the good news, the joyful news, that God loves you so much. He sent his son to earth to die for you so that you could have your sin taken away. You would move out of the kingdom of sin into the kingdom of God. You would go from being a spiritual orphan to being a son or daughter of the Most High King. You go from your spiritual death into spiritual life. If you've never made a, de a decision like that, I encourage you, make today your spiritual birthday. Most people, they, they mark a decision like this with prayer. And they, they simply pray something along the lines of Heavenly Father, I admit and confess that I am a sinner. Thank you that through Jesus, my sin is forgiven. Would you now help me to follow you? Jesus, you gave your life for me, so I now give my life and make Jesus my king. This pandemic is revealing to us that we've had some really bad kings. Uh, some of us, we've, we've put our faith in our health. And now suddenly we're having to find ourselves doing physical distancing or we're, we're self-quarantining or we're having to be really, really careful, realizing we cannot, we can no longer just truly trust in our own health. 
Many of us, we've put our, our faith in our government, thinking that government will save us. And we've seen them trying to work through this and, and all that's happening. And it makes us realize we can't make the government our king. Some of us, our economic status, some of us, we're, we're doing okay. We're, we're middle class or upper middle class. We're doing fine. And now suddenly people are losing jobs. There's all sorts of concern. That's why the Congress just passed this big bill trying to help keep the economy going in the midst of all of this. We can't make the economy our king either. Probably the most of us, the majority, we've tried to make ourselves our king. We think we're good enough. We're fine. We're the everyday Joes. We're the Pharisees. We're doing just fine on our own. And yet... In the midst of all this, we're discovering even I make a really bad king for myself. The only king that is the right king is Jesus. See, Jesus is far more concerned about your spiritual state than your physical state. One day you will die, whether it is because of COVID-19 or just old age. But Jesus came to restore your inner person, to bring you spiritual life. And the way to come into the kingdom of God is to repent and believe. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray right now for anyone that as they're listening to me pray, they're beginning to repent and believe. I thank you, God, that you are everywhere all the time. And so you are hearing our prayers as we are scattered across homes all over Bremer County, Butler County, uh, throughout Iowa and even beyond. Thank you that you are hearing our prayers right now. Would you hear the confessions of your people as they confess their sin, as they repent of their wrong? And would you hear them as they express their belief, put their faith in Jesus, as they believe the gospel, the good news, that you, God, loved us so much, you sent your one and only begotten Son. And then you tell us that whoever would believe in him would not perish, have eternal life. You change us from the inside out. So God, I pray that you would do this for your glory and for our joy. Because God, you have been changing the lives of people back in the time of Jesus and throughout all of history, and you continue to do it to this day. Let that story be our story. Let our lives be absolutely and fundamentally changed by the gospel because of you and your love and your work through the cross. So Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for being our king. Thank you for bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Thank you for overthrowing sin. And thank you for your invitation to come and follow you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.